This is Sean, and you're listening to Promise, a podcast showcasing the heroes of tomorrow. Every episode is an exploration on the idea of promise itself, whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there. I speak with exceptional, purpose-driven people on their journeys to change the world. Today, I host Dr. Chris Ferry, Associate Professor of Quantum Theory at the University of Technology, Sydney, and co-founder of Eigen Systems. Eigen Systems is democratizing access to quantum computing by producing affordable, personal quantum computing devices called Quakas. We cover topics like hype-based tech versus real tech, why quantum literacy is necessary for our future, and instilling an appreciation for education in people. Two special shout-outs to friends of the show this week. Firstly, to Emily Mason, founder of Knight, for assistance with questions in this episode. And secondly, to Matt Galetta, host of the Paradigm podcast that tackles the deeper philosophies and epistemology of science with experts like Dr. Chris Ferry. Please enjoy my discussion with Dr. Chris Ferry. We welcome Dr. Chris Ferry, Associate Professor of Quantum Physics at the University of Technology, Sydney, publisher of multiple books focused on educating people in quantum theory, and also one of the co-founders of Eigen Systems. Dr. Ferry, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Really excited to speak with you on the Promise podcast. You're probably the most famous guest that I've had on the show so far, having had a huge number of books published, specifically trying to educate people on quantum physics. So I'll preface this by saying I have zero background in quantum theory, and I try to get some help from someone who is working in the post-quantum cryptography space who helped formulate some of the questions for me. Thank you very much, Emily Mason, fellow Canadian as well. So the majority of your books, for anybody who doesn't know, are targeted at young children. And you did also earlier this year publish one called Quantum Bullshit, not for children. What actually prompted you to push out this large volume of books focused on this space? Well, I've always been interested in education. I've been an academic my whole life. And so my life has revolved around education in one way or the other. My favorite quote, it's unattributed. It's used in the context of medicine. It's called learn one, do one, teach one. So to be a surgeon, you have to learn how to do surgery. You have to do a surgery. And before you can become a bona fide surgeon, you have to teach someone else how to do a surgery. And so in my academic career, half of my life has been in receiving education. But even within that context, I've felt like I learned more by teaching other people than I did by just passively trying to receive an education. So I've been involved in teaching all the way back to my undergraduate level. So there's a selfish reason for it, which is I don't feel like I really understand something until I go through the process of teaching it because that gives a new level of responsibility to yourself and to the people that you're going to teach it to. So that's, I think, ultimately where it comes from. But having done it, I think there's a positive feedback loop as well. I wrote the first book because I wanted to find a different way to understand quantum physics than had existed. But then people say, this is great. We love the book. What else can you do? And so then you write more and it just kind of steamrolls from there. Yeah. Awesome. And I think it's also especially relevant given how often the term quantum gets thrown around nowadays. That's partially the motivation for writing quantum bullshit. Outside of all of this educational 
work that you're trying to do with the books. You've also co-founded a company called Eigen Systems, which we can talk more uh, about later. Just as a brief overview, what are you trying to do with Eigen Systems? Yeah, so Eigen Systems, our mission is to democratize access to quantum computing education. So at the moment, you can access real quantum technology, but it's expensive. The commercial quantum computer costs $10 million, for example. So you're very limited in how you can access and really interact in a meaningful way with the technology. And so that's the problem that we're trying to solve. And we feel like everyone deserves access if they want to quantum technology. And it's as important as digital literacy, numeracy, and standard literacy, I think for young people and by extension, everyone. Awesome. Let's actually dive into why you think that's the case. So at present, if you're in any way, shape or form involved with a startup ecosystem, I think everyone realizes there is a ton of hype around AI right now, and all eyes are focused on that. So when there's all this hype about AI, why should people actually care about quantum computing? With AI, the hype, and we've seen this over the past decade or two, the cycle is very, very quick. So if you jump in really quick, maybe you make an app that uses the chat GPT API, you can jump to the top of the app store for a few weeks or months, but that's a gamble. You might as well just be playing the lottery. People don't understand it. And the fuel for any success you can have is the hype. And we know that the hype is going to fade, right? Whereas with quantum, it's real technology we're building. It doesn't rely on hype. It's a slower process. So if you're future focused, right, then you want to be paying attention to quantum. Get in early, you'll be able to see things as we progress in, in the field and have a more manageable set of risks if you have that kind of overarching vision over a field that evolves slowly. Understandable. And because quantum computing is quite hardware-based, will there be any influence on artificial intelligence as you develop quantum technology? There could be. My research group at the university, part of it is focused on what we call quantum machine learning. So there's a few aspects to it. One is this idea that quantum computers are going to solve existing problems. I phrase a problem and the quantum computer can solve that problem faster than a conventional computer. Well, in AI and machine learning, one standard problem that people solve all the time is optimization. So you're optimizing the parameters in your neural network, for example, that can be phrased as a problem that a quantum computer might be able to solve. So quantum computers might interact with just the AI that we have, but just make it more efficient and faster. The other thing that might happen is that a quantum computer is a different kind of computational device. It computes things in a different way. And just like AI and conventional machine learning is an extension of the concept of classical computation, as we call it, digital computation, right? An AI system runs on a digital computer. There may be new yet unforeseeable concepts analogous to machine learning and AI that are natively quantum that will run on quantum processors. So, you know, that's an open area of research, but I wouldn't rule it out. I, I don't know if you probably heard the quote from, I think that was like 1948-ish around that time, IBM's CTO said, there'll never be a market in the world for more than six computers. So, you know, 
humans are terrible at making long-term predictions, right? So it'd be silly for me to say, oh, this is what quantum computers will be useful for or used for in five to 10 years. But when you understand what quantum computers are, how they work, what we're trying to do, then it's just obvious that with this new capability, opening up a new realm of access to the world around us, it's either going to teach us that we've found a limit of what we can understand and we can't progress any further, or it's going to provide a huge technological benefit. And so either way, the answer is interesting. Yeah, excellent. Actually, that kind of mirrors the discussions taking place in the political sphere about how to regulate AI at this point in time. So just on that, I'll take into account the fact you just said humans are terrible at predicting the future. But if you foresee any potential risks as we develop quantum technology, both as an individual and worldwide risks. Yeah, I think certainly all technology can be used for good or for nefarious purposes. I don't think there's anything native to the technology about that fact, right? You can give a gun to a good person and they won't shoot anyone with it, or you can give it to a bad person and they might shoot someone. So I think the conversation really shouldn't focus on the technology itself because that distracts from the real problem, right? Which is like human level conflict that quantum physics is not prepared to explain the reason for. So if it's the case that we can prove that we can't solve human conflict and more technology will just exasperate the problem, then probably we should stop developing technology. Or maybe the Darwinian experiment that ended up with humans was just a bad one in the first place. I'm more optimistic. I think that we can work towards a society where we use technology only for good. Technology in and of itself evolves, right? Because it serves a human purpose. You can apply the principles of evolution to technology and the environment of technology is whether humans think it's useful or not. So from that point of view, I don't see there being some singularity or where all of a sudden our technology takes over and because that's just not how evolution works, right? So I think we really need to look more inward on ourselves and what was the root cause of these conflicts rather than say, because we all apparently act like children, we can't have nice things. All that said, there's obviously a balance that we need to strike as human beings and our understanding of how advanced this technology can be and how it might influence our lives. Do you think there's anything that we're not paying attention to or not talking about enough, considering there are these discussions about what we should and should not be doing with artificial intelligence? Do you think there should be similar with quantum technology? I mean, maybe in some sense, that's the problem we're trying to solve, right? Why is there so much conversation and so much confusion and so much disagreement in AI about what the consequences might be is because people don't understand what it is, right? Some people in very high decision-making positions still think AI is the terminator, right? They don't understand what the technology actually does. And if we ever get to this place with quantum technology, we're screwed because people, even experts like scientists, when they speak about quantum physics in the public, and this is why I wrote the latest book, they get it wrong. The vast majority of people don't understand quantum physics, not because it's difficult to understand, but because we've done a terrible job explaining what it is. So that's the problem. The problem is that there isn't enough content material uh, efforts to educate people 
even ones that want, even the ones that seek it on what quantum technology is, which by the way, like we're using right now, right? Everything you look out at in the world around you required an understanding of quantum physics to produce. Even your plastic desk, right? Required material science from quantum physics to understand how to build. Yeah. Okay. And obviously you're trying to tackle that problem by being a science communicator yourself. Are there any other ways that you're looking to challenge this problem? Yeah. So with eigensystems, we're trying to take this more head on. So I, as a university professor, lecture to students who enroll in quantum physics subjects or quantum computing subjects, but that's not scalable, right? I can't educate everyone that way. With eigensystems and the first product that we're building, I call it a desktop quantum computer or desktop quantum emulator, is meant to get around this issue that at the moment, if you want to be educated beyond the pop sci Marvel movie level on quantum technology, then you have to enroll and be accepted at a university. This is going to get around that sort of constraint and allow more equitable access to quantum technology in education. Awesome. We'll dive into the systems themselves in a little bit. I'm just really curious, actually, how did you even get into quantum theory? Like, what was younger Chris going through that made him decide, I'm going to study quantum theory and quantum physics, and I'm going to make my life out of this subject area? I think it's more on the just general academic mindset that I just had this thirst for knowledge, but it was naive, right? When I was young, I grew up pretty privileged. You know, I had a middle-class family in the eighties during economic boom. And you have this kind of rosy, naive picture of the world, right? You think doctors get training and then they know everything about health. You know, police officers get training and then they know all there is to know about the law, right? And you just look out and you're like, oh, the world's just full of experts. And then there are these people at universities and they're experts on knowledge. So they know everything there is to know about knowing things. So I just naively thought I'll go to university and read all the books and then I'll know everything and that would be great. At the end state is figuring out that basically, you know, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, sort of a long process of figuring that out, but you start to enjoy the journey and you just delve deeper and deeper and deeper. And you find out that, yeah, basically at least from a scientific perspective and also from an engineering and technology perspective, everything we know and can appreciate and should be thankful for is all based on this understanding of quantum physics. I wanted to know things. I wanted to have an understanding of everything that I could. And at this point in human history, quantum physics is that foundation for our understanding of nearly everything. Yeah, awesome. I, I feel like I share the sentiment, but probably not to the same extreme levels. Part of why I started the podcast is to just explore interesting things and interesting people like yourself. Okay, so from that point forward, you started writing a whole bunch of books and they were targeted at children. Why aim for kids in the first place? It was because I had kids of my own. I wouldn't have written a kid's book if I didn't have kids. At the time, there wasn't a lot of science books for very, very young children. Nonfiction books are limited to, like, here's a list of shapes, a list of colors, the letters of the alphabet, the names of farm animals and what sounds they make for some reason. I thought, well, there should be like science and physics as well. 
I'm an expert in this, so why not give it a go? It was something that I just had for my own children and I think shared with their school teachers. And they came back and said, the kids really love this and this is really great. You should publish it. So I initially self-published it and it did really well as a self-published book. So I just yeah, continued from there and then a publisher got wind of it and could see that there was a bigger market for this. And they came along and said, well, you know, I think I had five or six at the time. And I said, well, you know, we'll publish them all. And I said, oh, by the way, I have other ideas. And they said, okay, great. We'll publish those as well. Awesome. And now dozens of books down the line. You've written one for adults as well. I unfortunately have still not been able to secure a copy. But would you mind talking us through quantum bullshit very quickly before we progress the conversation? Sure. Yeah. So the books that are for children, so quantum physics for babies, has a surprisingly broad market. There's obviously parents with young children, but they appear in high schools. One message I got was from a high school teacher in Japan teaching kids English. They normally do this through children's books, but the content of children's books is often, you know, doesn't really resonate with teenagers. These books apparently are perfect for teaching people English in other countries. Grandparents love them. The only market that I couldn't hit was like the older teenagers and then undergraduates who just would scoff at it. So I thought, well, how do I target them? And I think it was like walking through a, an airport bookstore and I saw all the top 10 books had swear words in the title. And so I thought there's a lot of bullshit about quantum physics out there. So I can actually fill it with content as well as put it, the swear word in the title. And it's also was a chance for me to really explore my everyday sense of humor. I can stand up in front of a group of kids, put on my lab coat and say, hey, everyone, it's Dr. Chris and have some fun and entertain them and teach them a bit about physics. But, you know, that's not who I am on a daily basis. You know, it's more a dry, sarcastic sort of person. I was happy that I got to explore it. I had a lot of fun writing it. It's meant to be humorous, but it also teaches people about concepts in quantum physics through a combination of pointing out all the ways in which people usually misinterpret these concepts. So if you want to understand the major concepts in quantum physics, also kind of have a, have a bit of a laugh. If you're not too squeamish when reading a swear word or two, then this one's for you. Fantastic. You referenced Marvel Popsi earlier. I, I'm guessing you can only mean the Ant-Man movies that have just come out. So I was wondering if you can give us a quick example of something out there that is total bullshit. I didn't break it down this way in the book, but when I talk about the books to audiences in public, I often break up the bullshit into the good, the bad, and the ugly. So Marvel, I would say, is on the good side. They just use the word quantum. They throw it, they slap it on top of things. I also distinguish in the book as horseshit. Bullshit requires the intent to deceive. Horseshit is just stuff that's not true. In Marvel movies, you're there to be entertained. And so if things that sound tech and science entertain you, but at the end of the day, you realize that it isn't true, then that's fine. So stuff in movies, stuff in popular culture and pop sci, that's all fine. It brings attention to quantum. It doesn't really give people a really gross misconception about what it is. And then you've got the bad and the ugly. The bad is like taking people's money, small time grifts, like buy this quantum healing crystal. It's $10. It'll increase the positive vibes in your room. But the ugly is when you really convince people that it's going to solve a critical problem that they have, whether it's health or financial or whatever. 
So there's examples where people sell devices. One's called the quantum zeroid consciousness interface. In America, you go to Radio Shock. In Australia, you go to JCAR and you buy a bunch of electronic components. Um, so you put it together and you say, if people use it, it will cure their cancer or something. And someone had built this device in the US. Um, there was like 15,000 of them sold in the US before authorities got wind of it because people were dying because they weren't seeking medical attention for things that could have been cured. And they believed that this device was helping them, even though it did absolutely nothing. Like it didn't, doesn't hurt you to use it, but if you use it in lieu of proper medical attention, then it could harm you. And it did, the device was bound and then that person is now a fugitive living outside of the US still trying to sell it. So it's a whole spectrum, right? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Let's try not to give those initiatives any further publicity. So your journey so far has been growing up, seeking knowledge, heading into academia, taking that and translating it into writing, and now into founding a company, Eigen Systems. What have you found has been translatable from your past history into founding a company? For me, the obvious thing is just expertise. We're founding a company, myself and my co-founder, who's also an academic at UTS, Dr. Sandra Devitt, are experts. We're world-leading experts in the research that we do. Our efforts will be grounded in that expertise. That for me is the, the most obvious and easily transferable thing from academia to writing to now industry. If you're good at your job as an academic and as a writer, then you're good at communicating. And I think in academia and in industry, it's not something that people, it's not part of any formal education to be an academic. You're, you're never taught how to communicate, how to give presentations, how to write papers. You just end up being forced to do it at some point. Um, this seems to be a similar thing in industry, right? You, you realize post hoc that you should have had better communication skills. If you do develop those in any one of those areas, then that, that's also another transferable skill. But one thing that doesn't work is that in science and academia, if you're writing nonfiction, then you often tell the truth. Whereas in industry, I don't think that happens so often. <laughs> Well, I guess that shifts us nicely over to my next question, which was, what have you found to be the biggest challenge? I think for me, the biggest challenge is that when I write a book, I write the book and that's it, right? Someone buys it, they read it. If there's something they misunderstand or they want to interpret it a different way, it's their job to do that, right? They have a reading club and they all discuss, okay, what did the author really mean? That sort of thing. In academia, it's somewhat similar. I present the facts. And it is now your job to decide what you're going to do with those facts. When I had my first investor meeting, it was just like, I'll come and tell you the facts and you'll be able to deduce how great this idea is on your own. <laughs> so that was the biggest mental hurdle, mental challenge is coming to grips with the fact that you just have to repeat yourself so often. And that is just something that doesn't happen in writing. There's a, there's a photocopier that does that for you, right? Uh, and in academia, you state your case, you state all the facts and there's nothing more to be said. Whereas in, in industry, it's like, yeah, I wouldn't feel like I'm beating people over the head with, with it. Well, let's learn more about Eigen Systems in that case. So you can help beat me over the head about what you're trying to do. So the Eigen Systems, the name of your company, I'm guessing would also reference the actual systems that you're trying to build. Our initial product is called Aquaka. Because we're an Australian company, and 
anything in quantum technology has to start with the Q. And so it was either uh, quaka or the fruit called the quangdam. And quaka just sounds, people like quakas, they're cute, right? But we didn't necessarily want to call the company quaka because it sounds too cute. So we're like, let's just come up with something like technical sounding and abstract in case the second product isn't a cute little quantum computer. <laughs> Yeah, let's dive into these cute little computers. So you referenced it earlier, but I think the broader public understanding of what a quantum computer is, is these enormous industrial warehouse sized machines that cost in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. And the only people capable of building them are like an Intel or a TSMC or someone like that. So how do you even begin to create a small desktop consumer grade quantum device? I think a useful analogy to have in mind is 3D printers. Industrial scale 3D printing technology is huge and expensive, right? Like you can 3D print a house. But when people think of 3D printers, probably on a day-to-day -day basis, they think of the things they put in schools and kids make little tokens or toys, right? The purpose of that is to emulate the industrial scale technology. So you have a small, affordable, toy, essentially, that shows people the concepts and the capabilities if you can extrapolate to the industrial scale technology. So that's what we're doing. Like we're building the thing that will go in schools that emulates what happens on the industrial scale. You can't take a whole bunch of consumer grade 3D printers and stick them together and make a house out of them. That's just not how it works, right? Just like you couldn't take a whole bunch of our quacos and say, well, now I'm doing industrial scale quantum computing. It's just a different set of goals lead you down a different technological path that in some sense cuts you off from that industrial scale. So what we're doing, it does not provide a scalable approach to making what the holy grail of quantum technology, which is a fault tolerant quantum computer that would have billions of quantum bits running inside of it. Because we're using conventional technology, we're limited in the quantum capacity, say, of what we can do, but it's sufficient for education. What you see at so yeah, Intel and, and IBM and Google and so forth, they are trying to develop a new kind of technology that isn't based on conventional semiconductor technology to realize a scalable approach to eventually get to this holy grail of a fault tolerant quantum computer. They're not focused on education. They have a different goal in mind, and that's why they're heading down this path. And that's why you have these giant prototype devices, because they're not at the stage of considering miniaturization or packaging or anything like that. Whereas we're consumer focused and we have a target in mind and we're going after it. And we know that we can achieve that, but that takes us down a different path. We're not trying to scale the mountain. We're sitting here at boot camp saying, let's get as many people going up the mountain as possible. Right. Awesome. There's a couple of threads I want to pull on there. Firstly was the hardware aspect of it. My understanding is that you can't actually do quantum computing with conventional computer hardware. So things like the CPU or GPU that is powering the systems that we're using at the moment. It needs to be specialized for quantum calculations. Is that right? This is a really subtle point. And I think we've had this sort of cartoon idea of what quantum computing was and what it would be in the 90s and early 2000s when it was being developed. And then that has just perpetuated. For me, it all comes down to 
what you're trying to get the world around you to do for you. So what is a computer? A computer is something that automates algorithms that change bits into new bits. Any mathematical problem you can phrase as changing bits into bits. And so a computer can do that for you in an automated way. You can do it by hand. It's just, it'll take a long time and you might be prone to mistakes. So why not have the thing that runs at gigahertz speed and doesn't make a mistake, do it for you. The same thing is true with quantum algorithms. I can phrase problems as turning what's called qubits into qubits. And so these, instead of zeros and ones, these are like spreadsheets of numbers that can be positive, negative, and technically include things called complex numbers. So if I can solve a problem by encoding it into spreadsheets of numbers and steps that change spreadsheets to new spreadsheets, and it, it takes fewer steps, then I would prefer that method. A lot of problems can be phrased in this way. If you try to do it by encoding everything in bits and changing bits to bits, it just takes you way more steps to do it than if you encoded it in this other way. Now, I could do that by hand. Like I could do both sets of calculations by hand. It's just time consuming and annoying. When I'm doing the calculation of changing bits into bits, am I a computer? By some colloquial definition, no, like a computer is a little box that has transistors in it. But by a technical definition, yeah, I'm a computer. Now, if I do the same thing with the quantum bits, am I a quantum computer? I'm doing the calculation. I'm solving the problem that's phrased as turning quantum bits to new quantum bits. Because it's time consuming and annoying, I would prefer to build a device that does it for me. A conventional computer can do it, right? It just requires re-encoding that spreadsheet of numbers into bits which is an enormous overhead. That doesn't mean you can't do it. There's nothing a quantum computer can do that a conventional digital computer can't do. It's just that overhead in encoding what was one type of mathematics into a new type of mathematics. So there's a bit of subtlety there. On our devices, we virtualize a quantum computer. I think in the early days, the idea of quantum computing was you're going to manipulate a single atom and then put those together one at a time. So the capacity of my quantum computer is 10 quantum bits, then I have physically 10 atoms, right? Whereas if I want to encode the information I can store in 10 quantum bits on a conventional computer, I need a million transistors. Like I need a million atoms that are only using zeros and ones. So there's this kind of exponential overhead associated with turning the qubits into bits, but that doesn't mean you can't do it. But in reality, a large scale quantum computer will also be virtualizing the quantum information. There'll be many, many fundamental quantum systems associated with a single quantum bit. It's just at the moment we're trying to do it one at a time because the higher fidelity and the more finesse and precision we have over controlling the smallest things the better we'll end up being able to do it in the long run. They're trying to build it up this way, start with a single atom and create a device one atom at a time. Whereas we're saying, no, we have the ability, the capability to emulate, virtualize small scale quantum computers with today's hardware. And in the context of education, that's all we require. So let's just do it. If you don't require such specialized hardware and a lot of the value of it is from the emulation, why would you need to create a special separate device rather than running an emulated system on any computer? 
or any personal computer that people have right now? Yeah, it's a good question. This is what you can do now. So you can access cloud-based emulators from places like IBM, for example. You can sign up and run your algorithms on their physical devices. But there's a few reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. I'll give you some more technical reasons. First is latency. If I'm communicating via the cloud and I'm doing something that in principle, if I did on my own device or something that was physically located next to me, it for all intents and purposes happens instantaneously. But if I'm trying to authenticate and do it over the cloud, there is some latency involved in that. And if you're running a quantum algorithm that iterates tens of thousands of times, it only takes a hundred milliseconds to send a signal to the US and back, but multiply that by 10,000, right? <laughs> IBM's trying to solve some of these problems. I think they have some runtime initiative where you can now send your meta program there that will do the loop locally. But the other issue is that if you have your own device, it's yours. Whereas if you want someone to run your computation, you have to agree to some end user license agreement. And if you want them to run it at all, you have to give them some sort of license to run it, right? So there's some privacy issues there as well. Now, the less tangible thing, which there's some research behind, but I'm not an expert on it, is around engagement. The reason that we're doing this is essentially because when I was teaching quantum computing to students, they just weren't engaged with this sort of really abstract thing that didn't really feel that tangible. And then any notion of tangibility is tied to, well, there's some physics lab somewhere and it, it contains a giant refrigerator. And at some point you're just promised that if you send the program, they'll actually run it on the device, even though they don't need to, they could just simulate it and be lying and tell you that we did run your thing on our device. So the students really weren't engaged and we're having a digital conversation. I can't really evidence this in the same way that I do in person. If I take the device and I set it down in front of you, and the first thing I said to you was that's a clonal computer, the entire conversation would be different, right? And that's kind of what happens with students. In my mind, is a bit like a paradigm shift in the way I approach teaching quantum computing, that when there's something physical, tangible in front of you, it changes the way that you think and interact with that, but also with the concepts surrounding it. So when the students were like, okay, I can go by hand and analyze this algorithm by hand, that's a lot different than saying, now run it, program this device to do it for you. Not only were they more engaged, but they learned a hell of a lot more. So I teach quantum computing to students that have zero physics background, not even at the high school level. They're computer science students. And it was a challenge to design a subject that traditionally is built up around notions from quantum physics. But I just went down the path of, you have to program this device. And if you can do that, you've learned quantum computing. Right. That's a great challenge to set for the students. The last question that I had about the devices was around sourcing your own chips, because my understanding is that you can't go to a traditional computer shop and buy an Intel CPU and stick it in your system, for example. How do you plan on actually sourcing the parts that you need in order to build these systems? And on top of that, maintaining the supply of them, given the widely publicized semiconductor shortages over the last couple of years? 
Yeah. So I guess there's two ways to answer that. First is we don't have a runway long enough for this to be a top priority. At the moment, I can go on various websites and buy as many as we need with my personal credit card. Please, if someone wants to give me that problem, <laughs> give us enough runway where I need to start thinking about that, I would love it. We're at the point where we're building parts of the device and it's being assembled here in Australia. And then the core computing chips are off the shelf. So ideally we would design a single device that's assembled offshore, including designing our own compute boards. It's all in our radar in terms of the technology roadmap, but it's not our primary concern at the moment. At the moment, it's an annoyance and occasionally it's like a, a week or two pushing back of deadlines, but it doesn't seem to be affecting us at the moment. It's certainly on the radar. Like we're aware that this is an issue, but once we have the problem, we'll also have the solution, which is the runway to design a way around that. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. So you've alluded to your students and the people that you teach quite a few times now. I'm assuming that they're the primary users of this device. Are you looking to expand beyond people actively trying to study quantum physics in an academic setting? Yeah, absolutely. We're focusing on university level education at the moment, just because that's the easiest. We know how that works. It's in our wheelhouse. We call our friends and families. We're in a research community where we know everybody, although it's growing quite rapidly, but anyone who's teaching at the university, we know, and we can provide the hardware and a simple API, and they can integrate it into the subjects that exist at their universities in any way they see fit. Now we're discussing the next step, which is going to tertiary institutions, but maybe at the vocational level where they don't have experts in quantum computing. We have to provide them with bespoke content around building out a subject, again, entirely within our wheelhouse. But if we want to target elementary school students, if we want to target like a hobbyist or an enthusiast or something like that, that's going to take some more effort in designing a more complete solution, right? And so that's next on a roadmap is having just an educational ecosystem that surrounds the product. So with the flick of the switch, you can say, okay, I just need the API or I need something to target elementary school students, or I'm a hobbyist and I want to dig deep into it. That's what the vision is going. Okay. Awesome. Those are the immediate next steps. You also mentioned that you're starting to speak with some investors. How's that all going for you? It's a learning curve. It's a steep, steep learning curve for sure. Collating all this feedback is something that I've been trying to do, but I'm not fully comfortable. As an academic, you always feel a bit uncomfortable with uncertainty. And I don't have that yet. I know I don't see the whole game for what it is so that I can't optimize it yet. <laughs> but that's the standard approach of an academic is define the problem and then search for the optimal solution. So yeah, getting the amount of investment and funding that we need is an obvious problem, but it's not well-defined enough for me to then go and say, okay, optimize this problem. It could very well be that by the time we figure it out, we'll have accidentally found the solution. It's getting there. It's a learning curve, but at the end of the day, it doesn't feel like a daunting challenge because we have the expertise. We have a proven solution, right? Like we have paying customers. We have a positive balance in the bank account. We're making a profit as we speak. It's just that more getting to that point of scalability where that's just entirely outside of Simon and I's expertise. And it's just a matter of getting more people involved. And I think 
That requires the fuel, which is cash. Okay, two questions there in that case. The first one is, in order for you to get to that next step, are there any dream organizations you want to partner with? And the second question is, if you were to expand your team, what kind of skills are you looking for? From the academic side, not from Eigen System side, but we partner with organizations within the quantum computing space all the time, mostly on research projects. They're full of resources and great people, but at the moment, it's not clear what a partnership would, would look like there. And again, yeah, maybe this goes back to our inexperience in industry. I know people love announcing partnerships, even though it's completely vacuous and there's nothing there. So sure, we'll do that if that's what people want. But from an actual concrete perspective, what comes out of such a partnership, that part is unclear. There's certainly some synergy involved. So somebody who is building large-scale quantum technology would find it difficult to get people invested in it. This could be seen as a stepping stone, right? So there's definitely, at least at the level of that story, a possibility there where we could find partnerships with any of the companies that are attempting to build scalable quantum technology. From our eigensystem side, in terms of people, as I said, I don't think it's beyond our capabilities to train up on all of the business side of things. I just see it as an inefficient way to do it. So I think we need to add people that have more expertise and experience in building and delivering products and scaling up a company. We could bootstrap it. It's just going to take more time. But I think the opportunity is perfect right now. And that is a good argument to not go down the bootstrapping route and just add all the people to the team we need to, to make it scale and bring it to a global market right now. Awesome. Well, if anybody who's listening is interested in this problem space, we'll get Chris's contact details towards the end of the show. Let's look towards the far future rather than your immediate challenges right now and look at the world that you're trying to build with this company that you've started and all of the academic work that you've done. If everything goes right for you, what do you think the world will look like? At a personal level, I would love to live in a world where when I meet a stranger and I say, I'm a mathematician, their response is not, I hated math in school. That's the sort of world I'd like to live in. But I think there's this conception that there are like science people and math people and technical people and then arts people and like left brain, right brain thing. I don't buy that at all. Whatever you're good at, it's the thing that you spent time doing. And if you spend time doing things that doesn't really contribute to your growth and intellectual well-being, then you won't be good at very many useful things. I started and really stayed focused on educating young people in not only in quantum physics, but in lots of areas of science and mathematics and technology. Not because I think I'll identify the math people or the smart people and then they'll come in and, and build things and do things. It's that understanding and expertise take time. So the sooner you start, the sooner you'll be able to build up to it. And I truly believe that the, I guess say the ease in which I find that I can navigate the world and how fast it changes and how complex it is, is through the time and effort I spent in just learning things. That's what I'd like to see. And maybe it's enough that people understand that and the focus shifts because I won't live long enough to realize the ultimate dream where you have an entire population of people that appreciate an education. But if we can just get that focus shift, certainly in parts of the world where the opposite is true, where ignorance is seen as a virtue rather than knowledge, I think it will solve a lot of problems, right? I mean, we've talked about some, this constant discussion about AI in the media, 
wouldn't happen if people actually understood what it was. Problems with misinformation and the need for simple stories in what is obvious in a complex issue or complex world that we live in. Just having an appreciation and understanding of the complexities of real situations and real problems and the tools and techniques that are needed to solve them. And a trust that the people that have trained themselves to do that should be the ones relied upon. At, that's at the broadest scale, what I'd like to build. You know, when I say it out loud, it sounds like a daunting challenge, but again, when you have the skills, when you've trained for so long, it certainly seems like you can make progress. It's worth a shot. It doesn't seem so daunting. Amazing. I couldn't think of a better way to wrap up the show. Genuinely, Dr. Chris Ferry, thank you so much for joining us today. The last thing that I'll get you to do is to share any social media contact info if anybody is interested in finding out more about your work or looking into Eigen Systems in more detail. Yeah, sure. Watch this space sort of thing. I don't have a, a team of people that divide my online persona up. So you can search for me on Twitter or LinkedIn or all the social media platforms and you'll get the jack of all trades version of me. But if you want to chat about anything specific, ping me on your favorite social media platform, or you can contact me through my website, which is csferry.com. Fantastic. I'll stick all of the links in the show notes. Dr. Ferry, thank you once again. Thanks, Sean. That's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm. Otherwise, subscribe and stay tuned to learn from tomorrow's heroes and what we've got is Promise.